It's 1725 in London. George I, the English king, who speaks only German, is negotiating a treaty to protect Britain, France and Hanover against Austria and Spain. However, among the ordinary people, something rather strange is happening. London has been overtaken by a craze. Writer Daniel Defoe described it this way. The common people seem not to value the French brandy as usual uh, and even not to uh, like it. The distillers have found a way to eat the palate of the poor by their new fangled compound of waters which they call Geneva. In other words, the gin craze had hit. <laughs> Many Londoners hopelessly overconsumed gin. The city broke out in an epidemic of extreme drunkenness, provoking a moral outrage and government backlash that could only be compared to the modern drug wars. The British Parliament passed no less than five major acts between 1729 and 1751 designed to control the consumption of gin. Not alcohol in general, just gin. Many similar drinks were available and alcohol consumption was considerable at all levels of society, but gin was thought to have caused the greatest public concern by far. Gin had made its spectacular entry into the modern world. And now it's back. It's better and it's a lot less dangerous. Gin is now a firm favourite of party people and social media doyen and doyenne the world over we decided to take a closer look at one of the world's favourite tipples. This is Gincast. Really? Is that what we're calling it? We sent our producer Pinky to a famous genologist in Fox Street, Johannesburg, to find out the how and why of modern-day gin. Hi there. Are you Albert? Yes. That's Albert von Weyck who started making gin in his apartment as a student and found out there's only one thing better than making your own alcohol, and that's making money out of making your own alcohol. He ushered Pinky through the bar and into... Yes, there's no time for flirting. Get on with it. What do you think is the reason for the resurgence of gin? And also the comparison to what it was in the 18th century to what it is now. Really what lifted gin from the 18th century was cocktail culture. So playing with cocktails, coming up with cocktails, taking pride in what you were drinking. And a big component to that culture was gin. So that's where your classic gins come from. But that really highlighted the way that we use gin in our drinks. And it all started with the good old G&T, a drink which we imperialist Brits invented while firmly ensconced in the Indian territories. Ha <laughs> ha, those were the days. Nick Taliakis, who is quite obviously neither a Brit nor indeed an Indian, 
but yet another member of the genealogist team explains. Indian tonic water was specifically made for India because during the heyday of the British Empire, while um, everybody was running riot, they were also dying of malaria. And somebody discovered that if you take the bark of the, um, and I've almost lost it, but the fever tree, you wogger. Fever tree. And you boil that up and you turn that into a tea. What you have is an anti-malarial, but you have to take it every single day. And it was extremely bitter and difficult to drink. So what they did is that they converted it into little bottles with lots and lots of lemon juice and lots of sugar to make it more palatable. And because gin was the cheapest drink around, they started mixing their Indian tonic water with gin and it became gin and tonic. That was their initial idea of mixing gin with something else. So now you have a medicinal reason to drown a G&T. Just blame the bloody mosquitoes. Sadly, the British Empire and gin hit a decline at roughly the same time, which seems to me to be a bit of a coincidence. But now, while England seems to be sinking even further into the abyss thanks to that bloody Brexit malarkey, gin has made a robust comeback, like John Travolta or vinyl. Next time, your evening consists almost entirely of you and your mates getting absolutely smashed on gin. Spare a thought for those hard-working gin makers back at the distillery, constantly finding new flavours so that you and your mates can get absolutely smashed on gin in ever more entertaining ways. The hero of Ginologist is award-winning artisanal gin creator Jacques Silliers. Just the man to ask how gin is made, perhaps unsurprisingly, it all starts with alcohol. Basically where the entire process starts is our base alcohol. That's what I said, you woggler. It's an award-winning alcohol. I mean, this thing is pretty much as pure as you can get. Like, there are mornings where I come here and I just you know, have a sip. It's all sitting at 96.4%. No, I, I would die. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it would actually murder you. Curiously, it would murder you because it's so good, not because it's bad. The stuff they use comes from the KwaZulu-Natal Midlands, and let's be honest, they certainly know a thing or two about alcohol. An interesting side note. Did you know that not all alcohol is the same? Gin makers the world over have to decide what type of alcohol on which to base their products. Here's dear Albert again. You can use grain alcohol and you can use cane alcohol and you can use wine alcohol. We go with the cane alcohol. It gives it a bit of a sweetness, which is perfect for the South African market because South Africans like sweeter drinks. Right. So once you have made your choice, you have to give it a thorough working over. So you basically take the alcohol and pump this directly into our pot still. So this is called a pot still. It looks like a chain to me. A train? Like okay. a three-pot chain. <laughs> we call her Rosie just because of the rose copper color. I mean, look at her. She's gorgeous. Now, gym makers have two ways in which to get flavors out of the ingredients. The first method is called maceration. No, I said maceration, you dirty sod. The other is vapor infusion. Which of these two methods is used depends on which ingredients you have in your still. So the rule of thumb that we use is your heavier ones like your barks, roots, seeds, nuts will macerate. And the lighter botanicals like your leaves, florals, petals will vapor infuse. When you macerate, you chop up the ingredients so there's more surface area for the alcohol to interact with. 
It all has to do with essential oils and getting more flavour into the gin. When distillers choose to vapour infuse, they use a thing called a gin basket. We put all of our more sensitive botanicals, like your florals. Um, so, for instance, our roast geranium will go in there. So that, if you put straight into the alcohol and boil it, it gives off a burnt note. So what happens is you put it in your gin basket and the steam, as it evaporates, passes through there and that actually absorbs flavor. Getting there, getting there. The very last step in the process is condensation. Once the steam comes through, it hits the condenser. It hits the cold piping. It condenses into liquid, which then flows through here and we collect essentially your finished gin before it just basically needs to be diluted and then filtered. Why dilute it for heaven's sake, I hear you ask? Well, the answer is because the distillate is about 72% alcohol, which would not only shorten rather dramatically your gin evening, but might very well shorten your life as well. So naturally, we can't serve it at 72%, so we dilute it down to 43% and actually chill filter bottle, seal, ready for you to consume. This, my friends, has probably made it all sound like you could just switch on the pot still at breakfast and have a lovely, lovely gin and tonton ice and slice in time for lunch. Absolute nonsense. But how long does it actually take to make gin? And how long can this take? Bloody good question, Pinky. The actual prep work takes about a day or two. The distillation process itself can be quite quick, about five hours. But you can't bottle it immediately. It needs to rest. Because if you bottle immediately, the amount of oxidation varies bottle to bottle, which means that your um, consistency on shelf varies. And then that process can take anything from two weeks to about four months before you bottle. Finally, the most important part of the whole gin process, the drinking and since we're in the company of experts, we thought we'd ask them how to best enjoy one's gin. Here's Nick and Pinky again. For someone that's trying out gin for the first time, what would you recommend? Look for opposites rather than the same. So if you have a citrus gin, then to add a slice of lemon or a slice of orange almost becomes redundant because it's already citrus, right? So try something else. Think about cooking. Think about the things you like. So if you have a citrus dessert, would you maybe add a little bit of basil or maybe a little bit of thyme or even a little bit of mint to that? If you're having, say, a gin that has got a lot more spice to it, then soften down the spice a little bit. You know, don't add to what you've already got. Try add a little something that's a little bit different and, and and creates a yin to the yang. The second most important part of drinking gin is telling all your friends about it on social media. So let me now tell you that before you get into sending the message round by face tweeting or doing any of that kind of woggling, you need to know the bloody rules. Tell them the bloody rules, Albert. We not the biggest fans of going the fruit salad approach where it's filled with fruit, a little bit of gin. But look, it looks it looks good. It looks good, it looks fruity. But when we pour a G&T, we always think about highlighting the gin, which means not overdoing the garnishes. And when you add garnishes, you want it to complement and work with the gin rather than becoming the dominant flavor. So we generally try and limit it to about two or three garnishes per G&T and in not huge quantities. 
so that you override the flavor of the gin. But if you want to get deeper into it, you can. So, from the drunken populace of 18th century London to the marvelous and sophisticated joints of the modern world, gin has certainly come a long way, baby. Whether you're in Sandton, Soweto, Houghton or Alexandra, there are people enjoying these new style drinks. And you can see them. They're trying different garnishes. And some of them will drink it, say, with bitter lemon. And others will drink it with soda water. And there are no hard and fast rules anymore. The idea is drink it any way you like and enjoy it. Anyway, enough of all this. Now, I personally feel like a gin myself. And I'm off to a bar to get one. Thank you very much. And bye.